Nahum chapter 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the, idol, the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of the soldiers are red, the warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young? 
where the lion and the lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for their, his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and the, his dens with the prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring, the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes situated on the Nile with water around her? The rivers was her defense. The waters her war. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops, they are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. Draw water from the siege, strengthen your defenses, work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. There the fire will consume you, the sword will cut you down, and it will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars in the sky, but like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts, your officials like swarms of locusts that settle in the walls on a cold day, but when the sun appears, they fly away and no one knows where. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you, your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? This is God's word. Morning, everyone, and do keep that book of Nahum open. Um, if we've not yet met um, before, my name's James. I work on the staff team here. Let's pray as we come to hear God's word together. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that your, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so in a world full of so much darkness and brokenness, we pray that you would show us your light this morning. Help us to understand who you are and your character and help us to know why it's good news that you're a God who is angry at evil and yet provides a refuge, a refuge so that we might be safe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question for all of us to think about this morning, whether you'd call yourself a Christian or not. Do you want God to be angry? Do you want God to be angry? 
Because I guess when it comes to thinking about God's anger, there's a real spectrum, even amongst those who claim to be Christians. So um, I hope you've got an image on the, on the slide. Here, here's one extreme. This is members of the, the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, made famous by a couple of Louis Theroux documentaries. And as you look at the placards that they're, they're waving, you kind of get a theme. You're going to hell, not blessed, just cursed. God hates you. God is your enemy. And as you read that, you kind of get the impression all they want to talk about is God is angry. That's all they want to talk about. Their God is angry all the time. So that's one extreme. Let's have a look at another extreme. Here's someone towards the other end. So, so whilst Louis Theroux was filming his uh, first documentary back in 2007, Rob Bell, who's another pastor in the States, um, now a New York Times bestselling author, he was going on a tour, and his tour was entitled The Gods Aren't Angry. The Gods Aren't Angry. And he basically argues that primitive religions are all about angry gods who need to be placated. But the God of the Bible came along and was radically new. And as he argues for, for 90 minutes, he gets to the end and says this, believe that this God, the God of the Bible, is not ang- angry because this God is love. That's quite a spectrum, isn't it? A God who's angry all the time, and that's all you want to talk about, and the gods aren't angry. So question, do you want God to be angry? Now, I guess culturally we might feel a bit uncomfortable or a bit embarrassed talking about God's anger. But when you spend time reflecting on the question, you realise it's much more complicated than a simple spectrum of God is angry all the time and God is not angry. Because you have to ask some, some more questions. Well, what is he angry about? How does his anger manifest? How does it relate to the rest of his character? And actually, a personal element, is he angry at me? It's a more complicated question, just a simple spectrum of he's angry all the time or he's not angry at all. And this is where I think the book of Nahum is really helpful for us. Because while the major theme is God's anger, it's not a simple book. It is complex and it shows us God's character in surprising ways, I think, as even as we look at God's anger. So we're going to try and look through the, the whole book this morning um, I think there are two helpful ways into the book, because I guess lots of us haven't read it much before. There are two helpful ways in. The first is to see the book of Nahum as the awkward cousin of the book of Jonah. Now, next week, we're going to hear about the book of Jonah if you're here at church or at Revive. But both were prophets speaking to the same city, the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the dominant Assyrian Empire. It was the superpower of the Middle East. It had undergone massive military expansion, just destroyed everything in its path. And so both prophets, Jonah and Nahum, were speaking about the city of Nineveh. Both were written pretty close together, within roughly 100 years or so. And yet everyone loves the book of Jonah. I mean, it's a great story, and it's probably in every kid's Bible you'll ever come across. You know, the prophet who runs away and gets swallowed by a whale and then spat out and goes back, and there's there's a happy ending because Nineveh repent and God's anger doesn't fall, and it's a fantastic book. And if you're at a dinner party, you'd want to speak to Jonah, while Nahum would be sitting in the corner on his own. No one wants to speak to him. Actually, I guess that's how lots of us treat the book in our Bible. We perhaps get to it in our yearly Bible reading plan, but no one sort of turns up, Nahum, really, I want to read it. Because it's a book about God's judgment, and it falls, and God is angry. So there's one way just to think of the book. It's the awkward cousin of the book of Jonah. There's another helpful way as well, I think. So if you look down at chapter 1, verse 1, this doesn't work with every book of the Bible, but someone helpfully pointed out, if you look at the names, so it's about Nahum, which means comfort or compassion and he's from a a place called Elkosh 
which means God is severe. So you've got comfort and God is severe. That is, the book you can think of it as, it's a book of severe comfort. Severe comfort. That is, God's severity, his, his anger, his judgment is seen all the way through. And yet, the tone of the book actually is bringing great comfort. I don't know if you picked that up in chapter 1, verse 15. It says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news. So this is actually a book of good news. And if you get to the end, chapter 3, verse 19, did you hear all who hear the news about the fall of Nineveh are clapping their hands, they're applauding, because they felt the endless cruelty of that nation. So it is a book of good news. There's severity, yes, but it's also a book of comfort. So the awkward cousin of the book of Jonah and a book of severe comfort. That's how we can think about this book of Nahum. Now, the way the book splits up really is chapter 1, verse 2 to 8, does most of the theological heavy lifting in the book. It's a poem, a hymn about God's anger. And then the rest of the book applies that poem to one particular example in history, the nation of Nineveh. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through in detail, mostly focusing on chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. So if you have your Bibles open, that's the page to keep it open on. And then as we go through, looking at these three points which are on your sheets, the patience in God's anger, the terror to God's anger, and the refuge from God's anger, as we work through those in that poem in chapter 1, I'll kind of show you how it works out in the rest of the book so that you can see how that works. And then when we get to the end, we'll draw some conclusions, applications for us. So let's then have a look through, firstly, at the patience in God's anger. Let's read again from chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. It says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, you can't miss that these verses are talking about God's anger or his wrath. Basically, every line has something about it. But it perhaps begins in a strange place by saying, the Lord is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. Now, what does that mean? Because I'm sure all of us know an ugly side to jealousy. You know, that's overwhelmingly how we use the word. It's just negative, isn't it? You know, did you see so-and-so? They're just so jealous of my shoes. So it's just negative. Of course, there is an appropriate sort of jealousy. That is a commitment to fiercely protect something good. A commitment to fiercely protect something good. So a spouse is jealous to protect a marriage from anything that would intrude and break it up. Or a nation is jealous to protect their way of life from a despotic regime trying to invade. Perhaps appropriately on Father's Day, we might also think of a dad being jealous to protect their children. Now, when I was growing up, I lived outside of London, and, and one day I went out to play tennis early morning on a Saturday, and um, it was the, the local tennis club with one of my friends, as we often played. And it was quite early in the morning, and there was no one else around on the, the village green, so we were just playing. And, and as we were playing, two older boys came in and pushed the gate open and walked into the court, and we were a bit confused why they're here. And suddenly, you realise they're not here for good purposes, so that they started pushing us around. They actually uh, grabbed my friend's phone that he had with him and punched him and started intimidating us. And they were doing this for quite a few minutes. And when they'd had their fun, they went to leave and said to us, if you tell anyone, I'll come back and stab you. So, sort of, okay, I wasn't expecting that. And they said, actually, I, I don't trust you. Why don't we do it now? And went to reach and get a knife. And then, uh, actually, no, I, I won't. And then he left. So you're just terrified. 
And so you go home and went to the police and they try and investigate and they don't find anything eventually and you kind of move on. Terrifying. Anyway, a number of months later, um, the same village green, my dad and I were going over to watch a game of cricket that was being played. And as we walk over to the village green, suddenly you feel your, your stomach tighten because there on the other side of the, the green, unmistakably one of those boys. And you think, oh, oh no, I, I didn't want that to happen. There he is. And I sort of grab my dad and say, dad, that, that's him, that's one of him. Now, now my dad is, is not a particularly angry man, I don't think. Um, he's not particularly angry, but when I said that, you just see the anger flash across his face. And he just looked at me and said, I won't let him come anywhere near you. And for, for a boy to know that your dad is fiercely jealous to protect you, committed to do that, just makes all the world of difference. And as it turned out, he didn't need to do anything because the boy stayed far away. But jealousy can be a very good thing when you're fiercely committed to protect what is good. And so when it begins, the Lord is a jealous God. That's telling us about his fierce commitment to protect what is good. That is, his anger is aroused by anyone who threatens what is good. That's why those who, who threaten it are described in verse 2 as his enemies, or, or verse 3 as the guilty. And you see, God is so committed to protecting what's good that, that three times in verse 2, which is kind of this triple emphasis, it's very rare in, in Hebrew to have that, Triple emphasis, God is avenging, God is avenging, God is avenging. That is how committed he is, triple emphasis. He is committed to bring vengeance against what is evil. That is, God's anger is not an arbitrary anger. It's not like the gods of Greek mythology. So, you know, they're gods, they kind of, they wake up and they're in a bad mood and decide, well, we'll just throw some lightning bolts down from heaven and it's just a bit random and it's just for the fun of it and you get hit by the lightning bolt and you think, why me? It's just arbitrary, random. God's anger is not like that. God's anger is always perfectly measured against evil. He is jealous to fiercely protect what is good, resolutely committed to avenge evil. But then, as we think about God's anger, don't then miss the very important caveat you get to that in verse 3. So look down at verse 3 again. It then says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. I mean, slow tango, when you're reading it through, it almost sneaks in there and you can easily miss it. But as well as being jealous to protect what is good and resolutely committed to avenging evil, there is a patience to God's anger. He is slow to anger. He doesn't just fly off the handlebars at the first opportunity to avenge. He waits because his anger is perfectly under control. Actually, the second half of that verse, he is great in power. I think almost certainly that's his power to save or his power to forgive. You, you get this similar sort of language in Exodus and Numbers in, in two, two points. He, he's great in power. That is, he's great in power to save and to forgive. That is, when we say God is slow to anger, he's not just waiting passively, hoping that people might just reform their ways. He's not waiting reluctantly as if someone's twisted his arm. No, he goes out of his way to offer salvation and forgiveness, even to his enemies, even to the ones he wants to avenge. He has a great power to forgive. There is an extraordinary patience in God's anger. Now, when we stop and think about it, this balance of patience in anger is just fantastic, isn't it? So I guess all of us have experienced imperfect, flawed human anger in small or tragically big ways. You know, anger directed against the wrong person, anger out of all proportion to guilt, anger dangerously out of control. 
We've all experienced this, both on the receiving end and, if we're honest, actually dishing it out sometimes. But the God of the Bible is not like that. He is unwaveringly committed to avenging evil, not indifferent or impotent. But he's also incredibly patient, waiting and waiting and waiting before his anger falls, even going out of his way with great power to save and forgive his enemies. And the city of Nineveh had actually experienced that this, themselves a hundred years before in the time of Jonah. You know, the city was notorious for its brutality and its evil. And God had given them plenty of time. He'd waited and waited and waited patiently. And he'd actually sent a prophet Jonah to go and tell them, repent. And when they did, God forgave them with his great power. And his anger didn't fall on the city. It's just extraordinary. Years after years after years of evil, and God says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to send Jonah to come and tell you, and then I forgive you. But now, by the time we get to the book of Nahum, 100 years later, they've gone back to their old ways. We kind of get a flavor for what the, the city was like as we look through the rest of the book. So if you just um, look down at verse, chapter 1, verse 9... You see that they're, they're a nation that plots against God. So it says, whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. And then verse 11, from union of a one has come forth, probably the king, who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. So they're, they're a nation led by a king who's plotting evil against the Lord. How so? Well, probably the, by the ways they've been attacking God's people but also just in the way the kings think of themselves as being so great and mighty that they can do whatever they want. So, so here's, here's a sample, a quote will come up on the screen, from how the kings of Assyria viewed themselves. So here's one of the, the kings, probably the one just before the, the book of Nahum. This is how he describes himself. He says, I am the great king, the mighty king, king of the world, king of Assyria, governor of Babylon, king of Summer and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world, true shepherd, favorite of the great gods. I mean, imagine putting that on your business card. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Here is one who thinks they are king of the whole world. No acknowledgement that God is higher than they are. No acknowledgement that he is the creator and sustainer. No humility concerning his right to rule the world. No consideration of what he wants. I'm the king. I'm in charge. I'm autonomous. I can do whatever I like, even to God's people. And unsurprisingly, that sort of autonomy leads to them treating other people very cruelly. So if you just flick over the page to, to chapter 3, you'll see how the city is described. So chapter 3, verse 1. It's described as, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. I mean, I doubt that made it into the holiday brochure, did it? Bloodshed, lies, plunder at the expense of many, many victims. And in verse two to three, you get to hear what one of their military campaigns sounds like, and it's an absolute bloodbath. Piles of corpses left in the streets and other nations enslaved. I'm the great king. I can treat others however I want. An autonomy that leads to just cruelty. That's how Assyria had treated people for decades and decades and decades. And God had sent prophets and said, repent. But they're still treating people like that. And now after giving them time, waiting patiently, God now says, that's enough. That is enough. Now I'm going to come and avenge. Their time is up and the city who are guilty of great cruelty and are enemies of God will get what they deserve. God is going to act decisively in anger to bring an end to their cruelty. 
And as we look then at chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, we're going to see how terrifying that is when God's anger arrives. But just before we, we move on, I guess that the ego trip of an Assyrian king in the, the 7th century BC seems very far removed from us. I mean, none of us here will claim to be the great king of the world. But it did strike me as I was thinking about that, that this sentiment of autonomy from God seen in the king of Assyria is very much like the flavor of our day. Not geographically, I'm in charge of the whole world, but just I'm the great king of my life, my plans, my identity, my dreams, my body. I'm told to just do it my way. I am the great king. No concern with what God says. No concern to listening to what he wants. And when you have a society filled with individuals who each think they are the great king of their lives without any regard for God, don't be surprised if it becomes increasingly cruel as a place to live. As inevitably my desires to be the great king bump up against your desires to be the great king and we just clash. To live as the great king, even of just my own life, without, with such autonomy that leads to cruelty is to functionally live as God's enemy. And it's only the extraordinary patience of God that prevents his anger from falling right away. So there is the patience in God's anger. But now we'll move on to chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, and see the terror of God's anger. So let's read those verses again and just listen to how terrifying it is. It says this, His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon fade, the mountains quake before him, and the hills tremble, the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, and the world and all who live in it. The verses describe that the arrival of God from heaven to earth to bring judgment, and it is universally terrifying. If you had lived at the, the time and you were in one of the, the cities that Assyria was wanting to, uh, to invade and you were sort of looking out on the, the city wall wondering when they're coming, the first sign you'd get of the arrival of the Assyrian army would be over the horizon, you'd see a, a little dust cloud arise as the soldiers march and the chariots turn and, and the dust rises up. And so you see this little dust cloud and that would be the sign that it, it's terrifying, the Assyrians are on their way. But do you notice what, what the, the, the cloud of God's arrival is like? The dust of God's arrival is like, sorry. It is like the clouds, the clouds in the sky. It's not some puny little dust cloud over the horizon. It's it's the clouds that cover the sky. It's extensive and universal. I I don't know when the last time you've sort of been terrified by by something is, but usually it is kind of the the normal human reaction is your your body starts shaking, your mouth goes dry, and you want to kind of melt away into a corner. Well, do you notice that that's not what happens to just one person? That's what happens to the whole creation. Do you see that? So the mountains are shaking and the sea just dries up. And the fertile areas like Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, that's where there's very fertile areas. It just withers up and is lifeless and the hills melt away. The whole creation experiences the sort of individual response to anger that we experience. When God comes in judgment, it is terrifying All of which is to say that that God's anger is not something to be taken lightly. Yes, he is very, very patient. But when his patience runs out, it is terrifying. Uh, I I remember when I was um, at secondary school, we had a new biology teacher at at the start of the year. Her name was Miss Hannan. And she had just joined the school. I think she was just qualified as a a trainee teacher. Um, And and she was very young. And she was very softly spoken. And, And you know, with some teachers, she just didn't have much presence in the room. And to a class of 30 teenage boys, this is like sharks smelling blood. 
Actually, looking back, you kind of feel ashamed to be part of the, the class, but nobody listened to her. So I vividly remember that the first lesson that we had, she actually finished taking the register just as the bell rang at the end. Zero teaching. She just struggled to even complete a register in an hour. And she would get very, very angry. She would shout and she would scream. And everyone ignored her. Everyone ignored her. Some people just mocked her, laughing at her attempts to keep the class under control. But most of us just shrugged our shoulders and carried on talking to our friends. Nobody cared one bit about her anger. Of course, this very quickly escalated even beyond that. And within the first couple of weeks, you again remember, she just runs out of the class in tears. And at that point, we start to realize this has gone way, way, way too far. Because a few minutes later, the door of the class opens and in walks Dr. Smith. Now, he wasn't a big man, but he was one of the senior teachers in the science department. He was a chemistry teacher. He had a glass eye. No one knew where it happened, but there was all sorts of rumors about the chemistry experience that had happened. That had, you know, he, he was that sort of guy. And he walks through the door, and everyone instantly goes silent. Instant silence, because he is furious. He is absolutely furious. Terror. Instant terror. I can't actually remember what, what the punishment was, but it was thoroughly, thoroughly deserved. And you know, it is possible to, to talk about God's anger in the same way that my class treated Miss Hannan's anger. You know, it's just background noise. It's just a bit inconsequential. It's a bit old-fashioned. That's what Christians used to talk about a long time ago. Some might actively mock it, but most may just shrug their shoulders. God's angry. What does it matter? And carry on. But the book of Nahum says that would be a terrible mistake. Because when God's anger comes, it is universally terrifying. The mountains will be shaking, the seas will dry up, and everyone will tremble. And actually, in the face of the great evil we see in the world around us, we don't want a God whose anger is actually a bit tame, a bit ineffective. You know, we don't want a God whose anger, the Vladimir Putins of the world, can just shrug his shoulders out and carry on. We want a God who, when he comes in anger, he will reduce the most violent, wicked, evil men and women instantly to a trembling wreck of silence and give them what they deserve. And so in the sweep of the book of Nahum, this is what we see happening to the evil, wicked, violent city of Nineveh in chapter 2. As we read through chapter 2, I don't know if you, you notice, it's a fast-paced poem that tells of the destruction of the city when the Babylonian army arrived. You see as the Babylonians advance through the city, destroying everything, and the Ninevites, who have been so proud and so evil in their cruelty, are reduced to trembling wrecks. So in verse 4, you see as the suburbs of the city are overwhelmed by soldiers. In verse 5, the walls get broken down and the gates forced open. Verse 6, the king's palace is torn down. Verse 7, the temple of the gods goes the same way. Verse 8, the soldiers are killed. Verse 9, the treasury of the city is plundered. And then at the end of verse 10, this city that's terrified everyone with its cruelty for years and years. This is what it says, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. In 612 BC, Nineveh got what it deserved. God's patience ran out and the city was destroyed. And chapter 2 verse 13, it emphasizes the Babylonians are God's agents of his judgment. God says, I am against you. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. Through the, the, the army of the Babylonians, God comes in anger 
and destroys the city. In fact, God's judgment is so complete on the city of Nineveh that the ruins of the city weren't found until the mid-19th century. God's anger is universally terrifying. It's not something that any of us ought to take lightly. So we've seen the patience in God's anger and now the terror of God's anger. And finally, verses 6 to 8, back in chapter 1, we're going to see the refuge from God's anger. So in reaction to this terrifying anger, Nahum asks two rhetorical questions in verse 6. So he says, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? And you expect the answer to those to be, well, no one. I mean, how can anyone endure that sort of terrifying anger? The, the, the sort of verses pile up a few pictures of images that sort of say no escape. So you see verse 6, the, the rocks are shattered. At the end of verse 8, there's an overwhelming flood. Verse 8, he will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. It seems like there's no escape from this judgment. Yet verse 7, in the midst of it, brings a wonderful relief, a surprising relief. Because it says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. That is, there is a place of safety. There is a refuge. There is a place where you can be safe from God's anger. Now, as an economy struggle at the moment and people tighten their, their belts with the cost of living crisis, I noticed that one industry is actually thriving, and that is the nuclear bunker industry. Since uh, Vladimir Putin started talking about nuclear war, some companies have reported an 1,000% increase in inquiries into purchasing nuclear bunkers. So I've been doing a, a bit of research in case you, you want to know and get your own nuclear bunker. So you can buy a very, very basic one in a field in North Yorkshire for about £18,000 if you want one. Perhaps if you prefer the location of Norfolk, you can pay 25000 you can get a, uh, a bunker there. But the best one I found is a 56-bedroomed nuclear bunker which was designed to house about 250 government officials in Devon for £435,000. That's what it will set you back if you want to buy a nuclear bunker. But of course, the logic of a nuclear bunker is very easy to follow. You hear that the missiles are coming, and you know everything is going to be destroyed. So you flee to a place of safety. You run to the bunker, and you hope that the bunker will be your refuge, your safe place, and it will keep you safe while everything else is destroyed. And verse 7 says, the Lord is a refuge. He is a refuge. When God's patience runs out and his terrifying anger falls and it seems like there is no escape, verse 7 says there is a place of refuge, there is a place of safety. And that place is God himself. God himself is the refuge from his anger. And those who trust in him are kept safe. And actually, do you notice even more than just safe? It says he cares for those who trust in him. It's not an impersonal bunker, he cares. There is relationship to be enjoyed. He personally and intimately cares for those whom he keeps safe. But of course, it says we have to trust him. We have to trust it. Just like you have to flee to the nuclear bunker, it's no use unless you flee to it. So we have to trust God. And we see that the city of Nineveh totally failed to do that. So if, again, if you flick over the page to chapter 3, we see that the city of Nineveh tried to trust all sorts of other things, 
all sorts of other things. We don't have time to go into great detail, but chapter 3, verse 8 to 11, they trusted in their past successes. So when it's talking about the city of Thebes in Egypt, that's a city that the Ninevites had utterly destroyed, who'd said, we're so great, and Nineveh just crushed them. They trusted in their past success that they had defeated this other city, but God says that's no good. Your past success won't keep you safe. Or chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, they they trusted in their military strength, their vast army and their strong fortresses. But God says that's no no good. The, The army is weak and their fortified cities are vulnerable to the coming judgment. Or chapter 3, verse 14 to 17, they trusted in their economic power, their their merchants that were more numerous than the stars. But their thriving businesses and their entrepreneurs and their gold reserves, God says those things won't keep them safe either. Their economy will be consumed like locusts. Nahum taunts them essentially because none of those things prove to be a solid or stable place of refuge against God's anger. And as the Babylonian army come through, none of them keep the city safe. Of course, as we live this side of the the cross, how can God be a refuge from his own anger? That always points us back to Jesus. Back to Jesus. See, into a, a world set on an autonomy that leads to cruelty, God didn't sit around passively waiting, but sent his own son with great power into the world to save and to forgive his enemies. Jesus is God himself become flesh. The only one who has never dishonored God, the only one who... never sought to live autonomously. He didn't come to do his own will, but the one will of the one who sent him. The only one who's never treated others cruelly, even his worst enemies couldn't pin anything on him when he was on trial. If there was ever a man undeserving of God's anger, it was Jesus. Yet in the wonderful goodness of God, this Jesus chose to step in front and shield people like you and me from the anger that rightly ought to be poured out on us. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the overwhelming floodwaters of God's anger. He was smashed to pieces. He was pursued to the realm of darkness, forsaken by his father. And he did that so that you and I might never face that flood ourselves. Jesus is the fail-safe refuge against God's anger because he has already absorbed it himself. In Jesus, God become flesh. God himself is the refuge we need from his anger. Trusting Jesus, we can be safe. So as we draw to a close, let's just make a couple of quick applications. The first is this, applaud the end of cruelty, applaud the end of cruelty. That is, we have to see the book of Nahum from the perspective of Judah and the nations. So in chapter 3, verse 19, you hear how the nations respond to the, the coming judgment. It says, all who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall." For who has not felt your endless cruelty? That the nations applaud and cheer and celebrate the goodness and necessity of God's anger in ending the endless cruelty of the city of Nineveh. And the book invites us to join in with that applause. A God indifferent or or impotent in the face of evil is not worth worshipping. And we all know there's all sorts of cruelty all around us. So just this past week we had friends staying over and... um, friends saying we're from Australia and we get a knock on our door at 10.30 because someone has just swiped their phone and they didn't know what to do. It's just, just cruel, isn't it? Or, or this week I've been on a, a safeguarding training course and you, you hear do- documentary evidence of abuse that's taken place in the church and it's just awful and cruel. Or you switch on your news and you see the ongoing horror of what's going on in Ukraine. 
And in the face of that, we don't need to be uncomfortable or embarrassed by God's anger. Actually, the book of Nahum encourages us to celebrate that God will one day decisively bring evil to an end. Everyone will get what they deserve. And knowing that makes life livable in a cruel world through the tears. We don't have to be torn up by bitterness at the injustice or left permanently face down in despair or even consumed seeking revenge. God's vengeance gives us the capacity to keep on going. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God's terrifying anger, rightly understood, can be applauded. Because like the city of Nineveh, one day he will bring evil to an end. So we can applaud the end of cruelty. But the second thing to, to notice, to avoid the mistakes of Nineveh. You see, the, the book of Nahum also forces us to identify in some ways with the people of Nineveh. The poem in, in chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, is actually written as an acrostic poem. So in the Hebrew, it goes through the letters of the alphabet, A, B, C, line after line. But it gets halfway through and stops, which is very unusual. It gets halfway through and just stops. And what it's saying is it gives a sense of to be continued. This story has to be finished. This book is not the totality, not the completion of God's anger. There is more yet to come. And the God of the Old Testament is no different from the God of the New Testament as we read through, because the book of Revelation speaks of that final climactic day of judgment still to come in the future, where God's anger will run out on the cruelty of this world, and he will come in anger. And the book of Nahum says, don't make the same mistakes as the people of Nineveh, don't trust in past successes or our strength or our money or anything else that we think can keep us safe. No, instead it says, flee to the refuge that is Jesus. Flee to him, find refuge in him. He has absorbed God's anger and he can keep us safe on that day and he will because the Lord is good. He is a refuge to those in trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. The only place of safety is Jesus. Let's trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you give us books like Nahum in the Bible to help us understand you more. And we pray that as we think about these big truths of your anger and judgment, we pray that you would help us to flee to Jesus as our refuge. Thank you that in him there is a fail-safe place of safety from your anger. Please would you also help us to look forward to that day when all cruelty and all evil will be gone forever. Thank you that you will do that. In Jesus' name, amen.